Well, good evening. And here we are before supposedly another storm. I'm still in denial. You know, I'm usually in denial until I look out the window and then the harsh, cold reality, literally cold reality of of snow hits me in the face. But the good news is, while we're here, it's warm, we're safe, snow's not supposed to start for a couple hours yet, so we'll all get home safe and sound. But uh, before that, we are starting a new series in 1 Peter. So you can turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter. And uh, this evening, I want to just sort of get us started. Not not sure how far we're going to get into the introduction, to be honest. Uh, We'll see where the Lord takes us. But this book, it really is a very precious book in God's Word, as all of the books of the Bible are. But because it was written by Simon Peter... I want to take a few moments, like we did when we started the book of James. I want to take a few moments, and I really want to just look at Peter. I want to look at the life of Peter. I want us to think about who Peter was, who Peter is. Because I think in understanding that uh, Peter wrote this book, we'll understand that, in fact, knowing Peter will help us to to know what Peter's trying to say and and what he's trying to communicate and help us to understand the Spirit's uh, message through Peter as we study together. So let's open up in a word of prayer, and we'll get right into it this evening. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, we look to you now, and we ask that as we open up your word, and as we consider the background and introduction to this book of 1 Peter, that as we go through the next weeks and months, that as we study in this book, we would hear your voice. As always, we want to hear your voice. We want to be able to discern your will for our lives. We, we want to be able to know what you would speak to our hearts and in order to do that, we need your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and speak to our hearts. So that's our prayer, Lord. We pray that you just continue to bless all of us here at the, in this church family. And be with our brothers and sisters and those throughout our, our country who are just dealing with all types of difficult weather in the south, tornadoes, ice storms, snow, cold. It just There's just so much going on and And here we are, Lord, thank God, here we are in a nice warm sanctuary. We're grateful, but we're also praying for those who are not as fortunate as we are this evening. Lord, continue to bless our nation, continue to bless us as a church, bless your church in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, I'm going to read the first two verses. We're definitely not going to get past those anyway. And then I want to back up and look at a little bit of background about Peter, and maybe we'll get into some of uh, who he was writing this book to, to whom he was writing it. Uh, Let's see what it says here in verse 1 of uh, 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now that's the introduction. That's how Peter opens this book. But let's take a moment. Let's look at the life of Peter. Obviously, the writer of this general epistle is Simon Peter, one of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. And as we'll see as we get into this book, the theme of this book is living for God. 
living for God. We're, we're not going to get into that theme this evening, but just keep that in the back of your mind. Living for God. I think that's a great and noble aspiration in these dark days, isn't it? To live for God. And that's why I think this book is going to be especially precious to us over the next few weeks and months. Now, Simon Peter, well, his name, his given name was Simon, or Simeon, which means hearing. It's a very common Jewish name in the New Testament. His father's name was Jonah, and while his mother's not mentioned in Scripture, obviously we know that Peter had family. He had a younger brother, and his name was Andrew. We're introduced to him in the Gospels. He was the one who first brought Peter to Jesus. And of course, Peter and Andrew, they grew up in Bethsaida, on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee. They were from the northern region of Israel at that time, more of the rural area, but a very wealthy area, uh, had a lot of trade and uh, commerce in that area, and so uh, they, they tend to do very well in terms of commerce and trade in the area of Galilee and the Sea of Galilee. Now, Peter was raised on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and trained to be a fisherman. And I say trained to be a fisherman because if you know anything about fishing, you know you don't just get up one day and know how to fish. Some people make it look easy, but it's not easy. In fact, I was never very good at it. It's not something I enjoyed. But those who do enjoy it will tell you there is a science to it. There is an art to it. And so he was trained to be a fisherman. His father had probably died while he was young. And he and Andrew were likely raised by others in the community, which was common at that time. Uh, I only say that because uh, the family's not mentioned, and they seem to be very close with Zebedee and his wife Salome. Uh, Their sons were, of course, James and John. And James and John and Simon and Andrew were inseparable. They were in business together. They spent time together. They were friends. They were like family. And so... They probably spent their boyhood, uh, their boyhood and even their early adulthood in constant fellowship. These guys were always together. Now you think about it because all four of them became apostles and disciples, right? So four of the 12 were like buds. They were like best friends, if you will, always spending time together, really brothers. And I think as you look at the different disciples, especially the 12 apostles, you'll see that for the most part, all of them seem to have a connection to at least one other apostle. And uh, that's good because Jesus sent them out by twos. And of course, if you've ever done any ministry, you know it's always best to do that with someone else who thinks the way you do, who can partner with you. No one wants to do ministry alone. It's not the way it's designed to be anyway. So these brothers enjoyed all of the advantages of a religious training and instruction in the scriptures, but they didn't enjoy any special training, that is rabbinical training, Uh, They didn't have any training, special training in the study of the law under any of the rabbis. Uh, But their familiarity with the great prophecies of Scripture regarding the coming of the Messiah becomes clear as we study the Gospels. They knew the Scriptures enough to know that Jesus, the Messiah, would come. And so that's why their hearts were ready for Jesus, because they were prepared in the Scriptures with those great prophecies of the Old Covenant. Now, Peter was a Galilean, through and through, and Galileans had a reputation for being different. Have you ever noticed that uh, you may be watching a movie or a television show, and they'll introduce a character that's from New York or New Jersey, 
And they always seem to be portrayed, I wouldn't say in unflattering terms, but they definitely seem to be portrayed in a certain way. I can remember as a kid growing up, uh, the movie Karate Kid, and, you know, the kid was supposed to be from, I guess, New Jersey, this area, and he goes out to California, and he's different, and he thinks differently, he speaks differently, he acts differently, and it's all about how he didn't fit in. Well, the thing about being a Galilean, they had a reputation for being different. They were known for being independent and energetic and often became difficult to deal with. So we, we might say that Galilee was just south of New Jersey, right? So uh, we can understand that. We have a reputation in New Jersey. Some of you are not from New Jersey, but those of you who are like myself, we tend to have a reputation of being from Jersey. And so things go along with that. And if you're from New York, there's a reputation there, especially in areas like the Bronx or Brooklyn or Queens. So... That's the case here. He just was a Galilean through and through, known for being different, independent, energetic, sometimes difficult to deal with. They were franker and more transparent than their brothers in the South. And I think that's so true in our country. If you've ever gone to the South and spent some time there, people, they're so nice there. You know, they're just so nice. They never say anything. But even when they insult you, they do it really nicely. You know, they do it in such a nice way. But, you know, everybody's got their issues. Simon was blunt. He was impetuous. He was stubborn. He was simple. He was a genuine Galilean. You know, they also spoke a particular or peculiar dialect. And they had difficulty pronouncing certain sounds in Aramaic. You know, I remember my first trip to Calvary Chapel in Riverside, California. Uh, It was my first trip to California, but I remember going into Harvest Christian Fellowship in Riverside, and uh, it was a Calvary Chapel church, still is, and uh, went in there, and I started to talk to people, and people came up to me, and they were like, where are you from? Because you're not from around here. And then when they heard me speak, right away they asked me, hey, say water. Can you say water? Can you say coffee? You know, it's, it's like a thing, you know. Obviously, if you're from the Northeast, and specifically from this area, New Jersey, we have an accent. Uh, If you've ever heard anybody from Boston, they got an accent. But, you know, where you're from affects how you speak, what you look like, how you dress, how you act. And, And being a Galilean meant that he stood out in a crowd. And certain sounds were different when he spoke than other people. His Galilean accent stuck to him throughout his entire life. It's kind of a hard thing to shake. It really is. You think, you think you don't speak with an accent, but then, you know, people recognize it. You know, they hear it. It betrayed him. It betrayed him as a follower of Christ when he stood within the judgment hall. Remember? They said, oh, you have an accent. You're a Galilean. By your speech, they could tell he was a Galilean. And it even identified him with those uh, on the day of Pentecost who stood up and had been uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, they they knew that they were Galileans. Even though they were speaking in tongues, they knew that they were Galileans. Now, Peter was definitely married before he became Jesus' disciples. By the way, I just want to stop a moment and highly recommend that film series, The Chosen. I think most of you have probably watched it, and if you haven't, you probably should. Uh, One of the things I really appreciate about this, and it's an app. You can download the app and watch it online. Some televisions, but most of your tablets will do it. Uh, Season two is is just about to come out within the next few months, I suppose. But uh, season one is out there, and I highly recommend that. I think there's eight episodes. I think it's eight. And I would just really encourage you to watch that. 
because while it's fictionalized, the thing that I really enjoy about this series is that they take a very human approach to all of the disciples and Jesus himself and the figures and the characters, uh, they seem real, you know, when you, when you get to see them acted out in a very real way. Uh, this is what I know about Peter, and, it's, and it comes out in, in the, the film series, The Chosen. He was married. He was married before he became Jesus' disciple. In fact, his wife's mother, his mother-in-law, by the way, it's kind of hard to have a mother-in-law unless you're married. But his wife's mother is referred, it's one of the added bonuses, right, you know. His wife's mother is referred to in the Gospels, and uh, he was accompanied by his wife, actually, on, on his missionary journeys. It's talked about in 1 Corinthians and even in 1 Peter in chapter 5. He was living in a home in Capernaum by the time that Jesus entered his public ministry. He was living in this home, and it was a large home. His house was large enough for his family, for his brother Andrew and his wife's mother. He was also able to provide housing for Jesus when he was in Capernaum, so they had a large home. His house was apparently two stories high, according to Mark, if you look at the description. Two stories high, with room enough for large gatherings of people. So, while it seems that Peter wasn't a very successful fisherman at times because of the accounts in the gospel, he actually was. Obviously, they were successful business people. And apparently doing fairly well, well enough to care for his family. Now, Simon Peter is mentioned and referred to frequently within the Gospels. And what I'd like to do, because I think it's helpful, and it's actually, for me, it's enjoyable, I want to go through just some of the accounts in the Gospels, uh, just to kind of give you a a summary or a a picture of who Peter was and what kind of person he is. And we know that he was first introduced to Jesus by his brother Andrew at Bethany beyond Jordan. We know that. And we know that Jesus recognized Simon and immediately renamed him Cephas, or Peter, which means rock. The Aramaic Cephas, which is used, does not occur again, but the name Peter gradually displaces Simon as he grows in his faith. But Jesus always uses the name Simon when addressing him, always. And he encountered Jesus a second time by the Sea of Galilee. Simon, Andrew, James, and John had had an an unsuccessful night of fishing. Now, by the way, uh, in, in, in the business of fishing, you have good nights and you have bad nights. Like anything, you know, restaurants have good nights and bad nights, and as of late, not so many good nights. But we do know that business, you know, ebbs and flows, and apparently they had had an unsuccessful night of fishing, so... Jesus enters Simon's boat, tells him to sail out and try again. And he did what Jesus asked and caught a miraculous amount of fish. The Lord used that to get Peter's attention. And Peter fell at Jesus' feet, crying, Go away from me, for I am a sinful man. In that we see that Peter had a spirit of humility. He knew who he was and who he wasn't. But Jesus told him, Don't be afraid. From now on you'll catch men. And so here's Peter's calling to ministry, and he then responded immediately to the call to become Jesus' disciple. Well, he and his three companions were later chosen to be apostles. His name is listed first in the four lists of apostles in the Gospels in the book of Acts. 
He alone of all the apostles actually walked on the water. And he, with James and John alone, witnessed the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. He boldly professed his faith in Jesus as Messiah. We know this. And Jesus responded with, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. He also promised to give him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So Peter is quite obviously very special in the plan of God. He later rebuked Jesus. Imagine that. (laughs) Peter rebuked Jesus for speaking about his death and his resurrection. Now, can you imagine? Jesus came to die and to be raised to life, and he begins to speak about this, and Peter says, not so, Lord. He rebukes the Lord. Ah, that must have been an interesting moment, because Jesus then rebuked Peter with sterner words than he ever used with any of his disciples, which we're all familiar with, right? Get behind me, Satan. That's pretty stern. Jesus then took Peter, James, and John with him to witness his transfiguration. Peter was rebuked again by the Father himself for speaking out of turn when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's the one that said, oh Lord, it's good that we're here. Let us build three booths. And he comes up with a plan and the Lord had to sort of step in and the Father speaks and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased and listen to him. (laughs) Well, you know, that's what happens when you open up your mouth and you don't know what you're saying. Peter was famous for that. And He was instructed by Jesus to go and catch a fish. I don't know if you remember this in Matthew's gospel. To go and catch a fish in the lake in order to pay the temple tax. Now, it's almost tax time. Can you imagine? You need to pay your taxes, and Jesus says, I want you to go catch a fish. And they open the mouth, and the coin is inside. I mean, it's pretty pretty awesome. Uh, It wasn't uncommon that, that, you know, that... You could catch a fish, but I think it was pretty uncommon that you would open the mouth and a coin would be in it, right? But the Lord did that. That's recorded for us there in Matthew's Gospel. And then he was sent with John to prepare the upper room for the celebration of the Passover. So all of these were, were particular callings and, and responsibilities and tasks that Peter was given. Obviously, he was responsible and Jesus trusted him. I guess that's the point. Remember, he refused to have his feet washed by Jesus. But then, when it was explained to him, he became the first. And he was then warned that he would surely deny the Lord in his time of need. And that was hard for Peter to bear up under. In fact, Jesus predicted the truth because Peter was with Jesus in Gethsemane on the night that he was arrested. He tried to defend Jesus by cutting off the ear of Malchus, for which he was rebuked. And then he denied the Lord three times, which resulted in bitter grief. So, Peter has these ups and downs, these ebbs and flows. He has these moments of greatness and clarity and these moments of weakness and stubbornness and sounds like somebody you know, like maybe you, me. (laughs) It's important to remember that about Peter because he went on to become a great man of God, but he had a difficult start. Remember during the... uh, First few hours of that Sunday, the resurrection, he boldly entered the empty tomb. And he and John entered the tomb, saw the strips of linen in the burial clothes. And then we know from the scriptures in Luke's gospel and in 1 Corinthians, though we're just told that it happened, we learn that Jesus revealed himself to Peter before any of the other apostles. 
Again, not recorded in the Gospels in the sense that we don't have it recorded for us how it happened and the circumstances. We just hear mention of it in Luke's Gospel and in 1 Corinthians that Jesus appeared to Peter. We don't know what happened. But he was definitely the first, not the first person because that was Mary Magdalene and the other women after her. But it was Peter who was the first of all the apostles that Jesus, the resurrected Christ, appeared to. I think that says something as well. Now, one of the things that happened in Peter's life, recorded in John's Gospel in chapter 21, is that he was restored by Jesus on the shores of the Sea of Galilee from where he had first been called. Peter, do you love me more than these? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. It's generally agreed that Mark's gospel, of the four gospels, Mark's gospel was reviewed by Peter and even written under his direction. So it might be fair to say that Mark's gospel is really, while written by Mark or John Mark, it's really Peter's gospel. And what we do know is that this gospel, more than any other gospel, describes in very unflattering terms Peter's many failures. Now, now, just ask yourself a question. If you were going to write or supervise the writing of a gospel, would you, might you, edit out those failures? Might you just point to other things and maybe not record the terrible truth of your failures and all of the things we just mentioned? Well, you know, that's not the kind of person Peter was. This shows his integrity and sincere repentance concerning his denial of Jesus after his arrest. This was a man that had no problem sharing his failures because he had moved past them. Have you moved past your failures? Because until you do, you really are not going to be able to tell the whole story of God's goodness in the land of the living. You have to embrace, as a part of your testimony when you preach the gospel, you have to embrace your failures. It's a part of that message because your sin and your failures lead to what? Repentance, which leads to forgiveness and restoration and redemption. And if you don't start with the failure, then you don't get to the good stuff, if you will. But Peter did. Now, Simon Peter is mentioned and referred to several times within the Acts and the epistles of Paul as well. I'll mention them briefly and then we'll move on. Simon Peter's mentioned there, he was present with the other apostles at Jesus' ascension. And we'll be looking at the book of Acts in just three weeks on Sunday mornings. And we'll be starting there in Acts chapter 1, so we'll see that firsthand. But he proposed that the vacancy caused by the apostasy of Judas, should be filled in Acts chapter 1. He supervised that. He was the prominent speaker for the disciples on the day of Pentecost. He was clearly a changed man after receiving the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Here's a man that went into hiding during the crucifixion. Now he stands up at the temple courts and boldly pronounces and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was no longer the weak, unreliable, rash, and self-confident man that he once was was. How has Jesus changed you since you've given your heart to him and been filled with the Holy Spirit? You should see change, and if you don't, question why. He had finally become Cephas, the rock, and the name Simon is rarely ever used again. Now he and John, I was just preparing this study a few weeks ago, Peter and John were used by God to heal a crippled beggar at the temple gate, and that opened up the doors to ministry in Jerusalem. 
like you wouldn't believe. It was an incredible moment. God really used that moment to get the attention of those within Jerusalem. And uh, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jews gave their hearts to Christ and became believers. After the healing of the crippled beggar, another 2,000. So already within a few days of Jesus' ascension and anointing of the Spirit, you have a church of 5,000, at least 5,000, in Jerusalem. So think about that. It's pretty amazing, actually. Well, that's what the Spirit does when he gets hold of us. Amen? You know, they were subsequently seized and imprisoned by the Sadducees, and Peter boldly defended John and himself before the Sanhedrin. And then, in chapter 5 of the book of Acts, Peter confronts Ananias and Sapphira, if you're familiar with that account. Uh, They were deceiving the leaders of the church, and God did an awesome thing by causing them to enter heaven a little earlier than maybe they were expecting. Now, Peter and the apostles were used by God to perform many miraculous signs and wonders. And uh, this happened and happened, and then eventually they were seized and imprisoned by the Sadducees again. Peter was not unfamiliar with the inside of a prison cell. They were released by an angel during the night, and they began to do what? The very same thing that got them in prison, preach the gospel. They were brought before the Sanhedrin. They boldly defended themselves again, and the Sanhedrin wanted to put them to death. But they said, instead of putting them to death, let's just beat them up and let them go. And that's exactly what they did. They beat them up and let them go. But this did not stop them from continuing to preach the gospel throughout Jerusalem. And that's exactly what Peter and the other apostles did. And then Peter and John. We always see Peter and John, Peter and John. But remember what I told you guys? These guys were like brothers. Now, Andrew was his brother, but John was like his brother. These two were very close, very different people. But they were partners in ministry. And they had learned under Jesus' mentorship, under Jesus' teaching, they had learned to, to work together, and now these two are, are, are going here and going there, and they seem to show up everywhere pretty much together, at least for a while. But we read there that uh, he and John went to Samaria in Acts chapter 8, and they confronted a man by the name of Simon the sorcerer for his wickedness. And there they were together doing that. And then he returned to Jerusalem, where he met Paul for the first time since his conversion. And then he went to Lydda, or Joppa, where he was used by God to heal a paralytic and a dead woman. A dead woman. Okay, so that's a resurrection. Are you with me? Pretty powerful stuff. And then he was called by God to preach the gospel to the Gentiles in Caesarea, which is in the north. Very Gentile area. And he returned to Jerusalem, where he defended his ministry to the Gentiles. You see, what happened was he goes and ministers to the Gentiles comes back to Jerusalem, and there was a lot of bigotry. And now Peter is on the defense. What were you doing ministering to them? Racism is nothing new. The Jews didn't think highly of the Gentiles, but God had a plan for the Gentiles, and he used Peter early on to reach them. We know that. The first Gentiles were baptized with the Spirit through Peter's ministry. And then he was imprisoned by Herod Agrippa, but miraculously released by an angel once again. Why is that encouraging to me? I'll tell you why it's encouraging. They kept throwing him in jail. Angels keep letting him out. 
See, there's nothing better than being in the center of God's will. You have nothing to fear if you're where God has called you to be. I, I strongly believe that. And you're preaching the truth that God has called you to preach. Now, he participated in the Jerusalem Council. Uh, that was a council concerning Gentile converts. Everybody was up in arms about whether or not Gentiles should become Jews before becoming Christians. And he participated in that. And he went on to Antioch, which was the Gentile hub, or, or the church of the Gentiles, in, north in uh, Syria. So he goes to Antioch after the Jerusalem Council, and he meets with Paul again. Now, this is interesting because a lot of our leaders are getting in trouble for being hypocritical, you know? Can't go out without wearing a mask, can't go out without wearing a mask, and then you see him at the beauty parlor without a mask, or at the airport without a mask, or at the French Laundry, uh, a restaurant in the San Francisco area, uh, without a mask. And, and it's, when leaders are hypocritical, people get, they get aggravated, they get irate, you know? They, hypocrisy is very difficult to deal with. In fact, of all the things Jesus had to deal with in terms of sin, hypocrisy was the one he was the most severe with, if you ask me, uh, especially with the Pharisees. Extremely, extremely severe in his rebuke of hypocrisy. Now, here's what happens. While he was there, he acted hypocritically, that is Peter, before the Jews concerning the Gentiles. So the Jews come in, and all of a sudden, he starts treating the Gentiles differently, sort of separating himself, because, you know, he doesn't want to be criticized. It's not that he had a problem with the Gentiles. He just didn't want a problem with the Jews, because he didn't have a problem with the Gentiles. Are you with me? And so that's, that's a, a sort of a different form of discrimination, but still, it, it's hypocrisy. And you know what Paul did? He severely reprimanded Peter, who opposed him to his face, for his conduct. So he got rebuked again, this time by Paul. I would not want to be rebuked by Paul. Just saying. Now he appears to have traveled to the east where he ministered for a while in Babylon. That's the area of the Middle East. Iraq, actually. Modern day Iraq. Now there's no evidence whatsoever that he ever traveled to Rome or that he ever ministered there, although the Roman Catholic Church makes a big thing about Peter being the first pope and you know, his ministry was in Rome, and yet there's no proof that he was ever even there, interestingly enough. We have absolutely no idea where or when he died, but he probably died between 64 and 67 AD. Now, tradition. Tradition teaches that Simon Peter was crucified by Caesar Nero when he was around 75 years old. Jesus did make it clear to him that he would be martyred in this way, and so that Tradition fits with the biblical prediction that Jesus made in John's Gospel, chapter 21. And he supposedly, again, supposedly, requested to be hung upside down so that he wouldn't be confused with Jesus. Very interesting man, very interesting life. And as we have sort of look at a survey of his life, we, we recognize that Peter, Peter really becomes a person that we can relate to. And yet God used him so mightily it's encouraging to me to know that God can use a man like that. If God can use a man like that, can he use you? Amen? Amen. Okay, let's talk a little bit now about when this letter was written, the subject of this letter, style of the letter. The letter was written from Babylon on the Euphrates, presumably late in Peter's life around 64 to 67 AD, very close to his death. Babylon was one of the chief seats of Jewish learning and labor during the first century. So it's not surprising that Peter chose to go there. His ministry was primarily to the Jews. 
He names the provinces of Asia Minor in natural order for one writing from Babylon. So he's writing from Babylon and he mentions the provinces of Asia Minor as if he was in Babylon looking to the west. And uh, we read them already, but we'll, we'll look at them more closely. Uh, while Rome is referred to metaphorically as Babylon in the book of Revelation, that wasn't until 95 to 96 AD. So there's no reason to believe when Peter talks about Babylon that he's talking about Rome. Okay, That was a metaphor used by John in the book of Revelation decades later. When he says Babylon, he's talking about Babylon, the actual location. Peter writes with authority, and he writes as an apostle of Jesus Christ. There is no question, did you hear what I said? No question that he is the author. That cannot be said of a lot of books. For example, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. We can guess, but we really don't know. Now, we know James wrote the book of James, and we know that certain books were written by certain authors, but of all the books, this one clearly is written by Peter. In fact, give you a little reference— You've probably heard of a man by the name of Polycarp. He was a martyr, and he was also the disciple of the Apostle John. He refers to this epistle in unmistakable terms as being written by Peter. There's some other church fathers like Arrhenius. He was a disciple of Polycarp. He quotes from this epistle frequently in his writings. So there's no question, again, about the authenticity. There's a man by the name of Clement of Alexandria. He cites it many, many times, uh, five times in one passage. So First uh, Peter uh, chapter 4, verse 8, he cites five times in one passage. So there's a lot of evidence in the, among the church fathers that this book was not only written when it was written, but written by Peter himself. Uh, in fact, Eusebius places it among those writings about which no question was ever raised. So this is one of the books that have the strongest evidence as to its authenticity. Peter's also well acquainted with our Lord's teaching, as you can imagine, after walking with him for three and a half years. He makes use of it to illustrate and enforce his own teaching. Now let me say something about this book. This letter is written in what we call fine Greek. And we believe that's because he was assisted, Peter was assisted by Silas in writing it. It contains about 35 references to the Old Testament. And he references the four Gospels and is familiar with the epistles of James, Romans, and Ephesians, written by Paul. So it takes a lot of the New Testament writings and sort of brings them together. This letter is closely related in thought and language to Peter's teachings that are recorded in the book of Acts. If you read his teachings, many of them are recorded for us in the book of Acts. Sounds a lot like them. Now, it was addressed to the Hebrew and Gentile Christians that had been scattered throughout Asia Minor. Go back to uh, our text here. I know we've been doing a lot of background. Uh, but in chapter 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to a, a, a specific group of people, people who were both Hebrew and Gentile, who had been scattered throughout the area of what is called Turkey today, Asia Minor. Now, while James addresses Jews that have been scattered throughout the Roman Empire, Peter definitely includes Gentiles in his address to God's elect. Now, why is that important? Because the word, the term, God's elect, doesn't just refer to Jews. It refers to Gentiles in the church as well. He opens his letter with the Greek version of his name, not the Hebrew Simon. 
The majority of the churches of Asia Minor were filled by this time with Gentile converts to Christianity. Already the church was becoming more diverse at this point. Remember, this is between 64, 67, 80. This is, this is a time where the church is now becoming more diverse. Jews, Gentiles, people from different uh, tribes and nations. And that's a good thing. We, we're glad that that's how the church progressed at that time and continues today. These were the same churches, the very same churches that had been planted by Paul and his ministry team. Now, why do I say that? Because you'd be wrong to think that there was some competition between Peter and Paul. Paul planted, as a missionary, Paul planted many of the churches that Peter's writing to because they're on the same page. They're working together. They're a team. They're one church, one leadership team, really. And there's a term there, uh, strangers. Did you see that? Strangers in the world. Sometimes I feel like a stranger in this world. Stranger and stranger as time goes on. Like I don't fit in, right? Like we don't fit in because we really don't. But the term strangers refers to pilgrims. Pilgrims away from their home and looking for a new one. Are you looking for a new home? Yeah. I mean, that's the great thing about being called a pilgrim. The idea is like, this is just where I happen to be right now. This isn't my home. And I think it helps us to understand. Like if you're familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, you know, by John Bunyan. If you're, if you're, if you're familiar with books that talk about the, the walk that we have in Christ as being that of a pilgrim, then you understand why he says to pilgrims or to strangers, scattered. He certainly had Hebrew Christians in mind when he wrote, for he ministered primarily to Jews, but also Gentiles. Now, Jews from Pontus, Cappadocia, and Asia heard Peter preach the gospel on Pentecost. Those were the places that the people had come from on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, and Peter had preached this message. They went back home and they shared that. Many of them believed this message, and they came to salvation through Jesus Christ. They returned home to share the gospel with it, with their neighbors and their friends. And now Peter writes to them, these same people that had been scattered among the area of Asia Minor. This formed a strong bond between them and Peter and explains his familiar and tender address. Peter was the guy that shared the gospel that caused many of these people to come to Christ. I can remember going back now a few years. It was probably the 90s. Yeah, 90s. Uh, Billy Graham was still doing crusades back then. And I know a lot of people, even from 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, but in the 90s, a lot of people were still, you know, going to these rallies and these evangelistic crusades and coming to Christ. And so they would hear the gospel preached by Billy Graham, and then they would give their lives to Christ. And maybe they never met Billy Graham. They knew what he looked like. They listened to him maybe on television, maybe saw him live. But still, Billy Graham was very precious to people who came forward to receive Christ when he preached. And I think it was probably something like that with Peter. He had preached this message, and so many had come to know Christ. Remember 3,000 and then later 2,000? And many of them were from this area of the world. And so Peter was kind of a spiritual hero to many of these people, which explains why he wrote the letter, I guess. Now... This letter was sent to the churches by a man I've mentioned already, Silas or Silvanus. Silvanus or Silas was considered a a faithful brother by Peter. We know that. Silas was a prophet, and he 
knew Peter as far back as the Jerusalem Council. And apparently he worked alongside Peter to some degree. He was a prominent member of the Church of Jerusalem and a Roman citizen. He was one of two men, we're talking about Silas now, one of two men chosen to accompany Paul and Barnabas on their return to Antioch. So why am I saying this? Because Peter couldn't do everything himself. He didn't speak or write very good Greek. And he has to write to a bunch of Greek people that thought of him as a spiritual hero, at least somebody that really influenced them. So what does God do? Raises up a man by the name of Silas. The point I'm trying to make is there's nobody that can do it all. We all work together. We all need each other. Someone may have a specialty here, a specialty there. If you are working in ministry and you're thinking you're a one-man show, you can do it all, you're a fool. Peter knew he couldn't do it all, and so he starts working alongside this wonderful man, again, a prophet, one of two men chosen to accompany Paul and Barnabas on their return to the Gentile church of Antioch. So he has a heart for Gentiles, so he starts to work with Peter. They were the bearers of the, de- the decree adopted by the Council of Apostles and Elders. And this decree that they brought to Antioch established the Gentiles need not become Jews to become Christians. Obviously, he supported that. And so, who better to be involved in this ministry than a man like Silas? He assisted Paul in his evangelistic labors at the church in Antioch in Syria. In fact, he was so helpful to Paul that he was later chosen to be Paul's companion on his second missionary journey. So the man that brought this letter to the people of Asia Minor was a man who had worked with Peter and Paul. He ministered with Paul in this area of Asia Minor, in Philippi and in Corinth. And while he didn't travel with Paul to Jerusalem or to Rome, uh, he returned... uh, When he returned with him from Corinth, he wasn't with him, but apparently he returned to Asia Minor, interestingly enough, and continued to minister to the churches there. What does that tell me? He had a heart for that part of the world. Traveled with Paul all over the area, but when he had a choice as to where to go, he went to the very area that Peter wrote to here, which explains why he was a part of this ministry. At some point, Silas must have communicated to Peter the condition of these churches and what was going on there. They were suffering. They were being persecuted. They were going through trials and tribulations, and they were on the heart of Silas. So what does he do? He communicates to Peter, and this seems to be what prompted Peter to write this epistle to them, clearly with the help of Silas in excellent, fine Greek. It seems impossible that this is solely the work of a Galilean fisherman. The epistle is quite obviously the work of a man skilled and learned in fine Greek, and it provides us with some of the best Greek in the New Testament. And he's much more literary than that of Paul. So, we see how God works in the hearts of so many different men and women to bring his ministry to those that need to hear it. The main purpose of this writing was to strengthen believers in the doctrines that they had already been taught. And that's why the theme is living for God. See, a lot of us already know what we need to know. It's just actually living it. That's the problem. Have you figured that out? I think it was Alan Redpath who said, It's not more orthodoxy we need, but more obedience to the orthodoxy we already know. That's the challenge. To put into practice the things we already know. And live for God. Peter desired to comfort and to encourage them through their unjust persecutions and sufferings. And I, I think it's apropos that right now we would begin to study a book that comforts Christians being persecuted by the government for their faith. 
I, I read a post today that a pastor was jailed. I, I didn't get a chance to confirm it. It looked pretty legit, but usually before I'll go ahead and use names, I'll check it all the way out. But apparently uh, this post said something along the lines of a pastor in Canada uh, was jailed for preaching the gospel and released on the condition only if he would stop preaching the gospel. Sound familiar? (laughs) It's exactly what happened to Peter. But Peter desired to comfort these individuals. Because you see, Nero severely persecuted the church from 64 to, 70, 64 to 67 AD, mostly in and around Rome. But there was a great fire in Rome that broke out on July 19th, 64 AD, and Rome was nearly wiped out. The fire burned for three days and three nights and was checked, and then it broke out again. The citizens blamed Nero believing that he had set the fire in order to rebuild the city. Because, you see, we had all these ambitious building projects, and he couldn't get anything done. And so they believe he's actually set the fires and then blamed them on the Christians. And when they got the fire under control, they said that he went and set more fires. Now, again, this was the conspiracy du jour, but this is, this is what people were saying. It makes me look at the things that are going on in our country they never waste a crisis. You know, it's, I was mentioning this to someone recently. If you look up the Reichstag, it was a time back in the 30s when Hitler wanted more power in Nazi Germany. So he burnt down the Reichstag and, and blamed it on the Jews. And it caused him to gain even more power. I keep thinking about what happened at the Capitol a couple of weeks ago, which was horrible. Nothing good about that. How much of it was used to substantiate more and more power. You know, the National Guard still hasn't left Washington, D.C. Think about that. Well, Nero didn't waste the crisis. He diverted suspicion by blaming the Christians for the devastation. Christians were tortured in the cruelest ways imaginable for the emperor's pleasure. They were even burned nightly as torches in Nero's gardens. Peter mentions that in chapter 4. The emperor's example of torturing Christians and persecuting Christians encouraged the enemies of the church everywhere to persecute them. And I think that's what we're starting to see in our culture today. As the government begins to persecute Christians, more and more people begin to try to silence and persecute Christians. Well, the church was now suffering sporadic persecution throughout the entire Roman world. And to that end, Peter writes this letter. He hoped to strengthen them against the heavier trials that were still to come, and I think we could greatly use that encouragement. He challenged them to live for God and to testify to the true grace of God with their very lives. Again, I think that's something we could really benefit from studying. He's been called the Apostle of Hope as he offers many words of comfort and encouragement. He counsels believers to be steadfast and persevere under persecution. He encourages them to live holy lives in the world in which they live. He instructs them to follow the example of Christ in patience and holiness. And he counsels pastors and young men to live for God. You know, the major doctrines of Christianity are clearly explained for us within this epistle. The major doctrines of Christianity. The vicarious suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
the substitutionary death of Christ, the new birth, being born again of the Spirit of God in Christ, and redemption by the blood of Christ, his death on the cross. These are the things that Peter taught. This is what Peter knew. This was the gospel that Peter preached and the gospel that we should preach today. If we're not preaching the new birth, the substitutionary death of Christ for us on the cross and redemption by his blood, we're not preaching the gospel. Now, this book, of which we're just looking at the intro tonight, has five chapters divided into three major sections with an introduction, which we've read tonight, and closing personal greetings. But in between the introduction and the greetings, the themes are this, and I think they're good themes to consider. Salvation in Christ, submission in Christ, and suffering in Christ. And with that as our introduction, I think we'll stop there. We'll pick it up there and go a little bit more deeply into the verses 1 and 2, specifically really more verse 2 than verse 1. But we'll look at verses 1 and 2 again next week. I just wanted to take tonight to sort of introduce you, if you don't know him already, to Peter and all the scriptures have to say about Peter and sort of give you an understanding of why the letter was written and to whom it was written so that you can start to prepare your heart to receive the words of hope and comfort and encouragement that Peter gave to them because they're still pertinent, they're still powerful, they're apropos to the time in which we live today. Because we are going through much of what the church in Asia Minor was going through at the time that Peter wrote to them. So I pray as we prepare our hearts for this series of studies, which will begin in earnest next Wednesday, I pray that you will open up your heart and ask the Lord to show you how you can better live for him. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for giving to us your word and, and this precious letter and, and Peter's testimony, the man of God that he became and the hope and encouragement that he offers to your church, both then and now. Give us understanding of your word and help us to prepare by taking all of this information, which is interesting, but does give us an understanding of what we're about to study. May it prepare our hearts that we might receive the maximum of what we can receive through these studies. I mean, that we might receive all that you have for us. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.